Now, if there's one thing we've learned from the 2016 presidential race, it's that for better or for worse, social media sites will have an increasingly greater role to play in this 2020 election and beyond. A Pew study once found that 7 out of 10 Americans use some form of social media to connect with each other and receive news. But while many of these companies have shown willingness to address criticisms in relation to false information on their platforms, as a whole, tech companies fail miserably when it comes to accurately representing the diversity of America in their workforces, leaving behind what might be seen as tone-deaf decision-making. And it kind of makes you wonder, why haven't things changed? My name is Jason Diakite, currently residing in Stockholm, Sweden, And on today's episode of This Moment, me and my co-host, Chef Marcus Samuelson, talked to Joteka Edi, founder and CEO of Full Circle Strategies and former senior advisor to the president of the NAACP. Forbes magazine once called Joteka the Olivia Pope of Silicon Valley. So pretty much, she's a badass. Join us as Joteka chats with us about her journey from activist to CEO, the 2020 election and the shortcomings of the tech industry. Starting in three, two, one. This will be definitely a step down for you because you're speaking basically to a poet and a cook. <laughs> so this, the, so the, okay. there will be... You know, I've this, read we, and we definitely got to step up. I, yeah. I've read about both of you and, uh, and, 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 know, and know your work and admire it so much. And I will say, Marcus, that, you know, I am from South Carolina. I make a really mm-hmm. nice red velvet cake. So. <laughs> oh, nice, nice, nice. Good to know. Can I just ask you about your journey from South Carolina to the world, right? To the tech world, to the political world. If there's two spaces where there's a lack of black people and black women of color that are, you know, of course, add so much value, it's in both these spaces. Yeah, you know, really, I started in the church. It's kind of funny when I think about it, you know, uh, every black child growing up in the South knows that, you know, the night before Easter, you better have that Easter speech ready. And so my grandma, she was like, I'm not playing with you. You better do that Easter speech uh, like you mean it. I took some pride in those Easter speeches and I would do them very well. And um, I became known for my my oratorial skills and speaking skills. And that really gave me confidence to to feel comfortable standing on any stage. And and then also something very pivotal that happened. My town had a mass murderer, uh, a a man by the name of Donald Pee Wee Gaskins. And when I was in seventh grade, uh, I debated uh, that I thought Donald Pee Wee Gaskins should be executed. And for a major grade, we had to write an opinion, uh, a paper on the opposing viewpoint that we took in class. And I began to read about the death penalty and I learned about just the gross inequities with the death penalty and racism in the death penalty. And I became very adamant and, and, and passionate about wanting to abolish the death penalty. And I became known as the death penalty girl uh, in middle school and high school. And that really kind of put me on a path of, of recognizing and knowing that I wanted to do something um, that uh, addressed what I felt was systemic racism in the criminal justice system. And then at the same time in my small town as well, 
there was a strike that took place uh, with local workers. And Reverend Jesse Jackson came into our town. So if you can imagine a town like Johnsonville having Reverend Jesse Jackson come in, that's like big news. And as a young child, you see this electric energy of, of a Reverend Jesse Jackson. And, and that for me sort of solidified my passion of politics and fusing it. And I would sort of kind of follow that path. The first opportunity I had to leave Johnsonville was an opportunity to attend a forum. It was called the National Youth Leadership Forum on Law and the Constitution. And it cost $3,000 uh, to go. But, you know, my parents didn't have the extra $3,000, uh, but it was my community. It was the women and men of my church. They, they literally sold chicken dinners. They baked cakes. Um, and so it was the community that, you know, raised money to help send me to this conference. And sort of the rest was history. So I'm forever grateful. 
And we also have a president that's taken hostage uh, just the U.S. Postal Service. Very intentional and it's clear and it's documented where the U.S. Postal Service has changed their practices that has drastically slowed down the process. So uh, there are concerns, uh, you know, that if you don't get your ballot in early enough, is it going to get there on time? Uh, so there are all of these questions in the election. And so it's vitally important for people to make a voting plan right now and, and, and make sure that they're voting early and they are, if they're filling out absentee ballots, that they're doing everything they can to ensure it doesn't get rejected. Because what's also very real is that particularly in states where there are conservative forces, they are going to look for every opportunity to try to cast out a ballot. You know, there's just, there's just so much on the ballot. But also, we got to look down ballot at district attorneys, AGs, and, and all of those that are on the ballot. Because when we look at Breonna Taylor, we look at Ahmaud Arbery, and we look at justice that we are calling for and demanding in each of those cases, the people who could actually help administer that justice are people who are elected in office. So I wanted to ask you one quick thing. Um, is Black Lives Matters in place of NWACP? Are they coexistent? Are they collaborating? Do we need one or the other? Or do we need both? What What's the collaboration look like? Black Lives Matter is, and the NAACP, there's no replacement for either or. There is room and space for it all. When you see graphing paper, it's very hard sometimes to see the picture because there's just so many lines. Um, and so we have to see the full picture in front of us um, and see ourselves as a cohesive, necessary uh, unit moving together. Election has consequences. This election, 2016, obviously leading up to now and in the COVID moment. But I have to also say that it's also about our society as such. And tech, your other industry that you're in, has also is also an intersection here. And here's my question. In Silicon Valley, you connect with the brightest engineers from MIT and Harvard and Stanford, and the brightest, right? I have two questions. All of them knows that all of them were in on this in terms of posting ads, in terms of drawing in this, you know, the rabbit holes and so on, right? So you have the brightest in that community, and yet we allow this to happen, that this is not small things, these are people's lives. So what can the tech industry actually do so we don't have outcomes like this? Because this is not a small issue, this is a big issue. Tech absolutely has a role to play. And there are forces for good in, in Silicon Valley. I think just like any other industry, there are forces for good, but there are tech companies that have to do better. We look at the Stop the Hate campaign that's led by the NAACP, Color of Change, and a host of organizations that have been calling for tech and particularly Facebook to uh, really not profit on these ads. I mean, let's look at what happened in 2016. Let's say we had foreign interference in our elections. We have these uh, bots that are on uh, platforms and they are utilizing these platforms 
targeting people of color, targeting black men uh, with these messages uh, really meant to uh, really interrupt and um, influence our elections. And these ads, you know, Facebook is making millions and millions of the billions of dollars um, and there's no real accountability. And Facebook has done some, but there's a, incredibly a lot more that platforms like Facebook should be doing to not only not profit off of the hate, but also not to uh, allow for the hate to manifest in a way it does on these platforms. But there's a simple solution to that, right? And I, that's what I want to get to. Like, for example, tech. I know the five brothers in Silicon Valley. And when I have them in my phone, they're great guys. But when there's only five, basically, that means that there's zero diversity in the boardroom. There's zero diversity in senior management, and there's zero diversity in terms of ownership of these platforms, right? Or very low, which then obviously makes it very clear that, oh, if there's zero diversity, there's also zero thought process in terms of how these ads impact us, right? So we have this awakening now, but wait a minute, it's too late. This impact has already been had. And I'm like, dude, you have the brightest people, mm -hmm. but for me, they're tone deaf. And this is why we have this outcome. You're exactly right. I mean, who's developing the product? If the product is being developed and the thinkers around the product and those that are making decisions about marketing and those that are making decisions about core policies of the company do not have the lived experience nor the core cultural understanding of the communities of which you are either building the product for or the communities that are impacted by your products, then your products are not going to be optimal. But I mean, there's an example. There was a company uh, that I was with and, you know, the company was feverishly building out a new, uh, a new product feature. And, you know, I asked, you know, the product team member and the engineer, well, have you ever been in this community? Have you ever met someone who actually feels the need to use this product? And the answer was no. So you don't even know what, what it's like. You, you've never even gone into a community of where the target of the end user is. And now I will say that there are lots of uh, growing number of, of, of people of color in tech that are leading. But it is certainly not enough, um, and it is not enough compared to uh, the opportunity, the industry in itself, and even myself. I, I mean, I, it took me a while. Here I was, someone who had won, helped win a U.S. Supreme Court case that abolished the juvenile death penalty and spoken at the U.N., but when I went to go into tech, I, there was this, because I didn't see a reflection of myself. There, you know, there wasn't a lot of conversation or, or, or images of Black women in tech. You know, I just assumed like, well, I don't know how to code. Uh, I come from a very different tradition. Maybe this isn't a place for me. Um, and what, when I kind of got over myself and went in the industry, what I realized was, yes, there's not only a place for somebody like me, there's a need for people like me in the industry. Um, and that my skills were absolutely transferable. Because, you know, the little known secret in Silicon Valley, I don't think it's much of a secret, is that most tech companies, you know, they build technology and they build companies. And so, yes, you take coders and engineers, uh, but then you grow it 
those are marketers uh, and, 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 and that's marketing, uh, that's growth. Uh, those are people with MBAs that think about business and then you protect it. Uh, those are people who, those are lawyers. Uh, those are, are people who lead innovative partnerships, who think about policy. Much of those skills are transferable. So when people say, oh, well, they're not, there's not enough Black folks to transition into this industry, I stop them. I was like, let's stop with this nonsense. There are so many talented, brilliant Black folks that are able to come into Silicon Valley right now today and not in entry-level positions, but as senior level managers, senior level board members, and senior level executive management that can take valuable skills, whether they're in on Wall Street, uh, whether or not they're leading businesses, uh, whether or not they're in education, uh, whether or not they're in finance, there are transferable skills into the tech industry. Uh, and there's a real need, particularly right now, uh, for Silicon Valley to have this knowledge, to have this skill set, and quite frankly, to have people who understand the pulse of America. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Yeah, I definitely see, I mean, Silicon Valley being the the kind of power center where the mitigation of not just this election, because we're right on the threshold of it, but 24, 28, you know, 32, like down the line, mitigating this and, and maybe helping fix what's wrong with the, you know, seen from European eyes, very kind of archaic voting system in the United States. And that's just one that's just one lane where tech is is going to be invaluable as a tool moving forward, right? Yeah, I think tech has a lot of opportunity. You look at, I mean, and let's think about like this global pandemic right now and, you know, how tech has really become, you know, essential to everyone's lives right now. Um, and, and, and I think it's important, you know, to talk about there is still a, a real digital divide. In, in, in our nation and in the world, for a matter of fact. Uh, it, there's a real digital divide. Access to, to broadband and quality internet is still an issue. There are people like where, where I'm from. You know, when I'm in Johnsonville, South Carolina and during this pandemic, when I've gone home, I, you know, I've had issues of, of being able to, to work because, you know, the internet is not very strong and it's not because, you know, you know, it's, it's not because of anything my parents do. It's because the, the, the infrastructure is not there. And so imagine what it's like for a child who's now having to depend on going to school 
to get their education where there's a lack of infrastructure. And so I think there's a, there is a digital divide. Uh, but even in this pandemic, we've seen uh, a heavier reliance on, you know, we're Zooming for everything and, and we're using uh, platform. We're even doing this interview on Zoom right now. And so, you know, school is now uh, via a tech platform. Uh, the way people are communicating, people are, you know, going to their doctors and telehealth is now uh, via tech platforms, counseling services via tech platforms. Um, you know, dating has kind of transitioned to tech platforms, but even, even, even in your social life, the way we watch, we don't even really go to the movies like we used to. We watch it on a tech platform. So technology is so integrated. I don't even think we even sort of think about it as much anymore, but technology is so integrated in so much of our lives, even how we're banking. And so technology has an opportunity to either help be a driver of the solution or part of the problem. And I think that is the fundamental question that tech has to ask itself. It has to ensure that the people who are building the technology, who are making decisions on the technology, are part of the communities in which they're building technology for um, and a reflective of the world in which we live in. 2024, when future vice president will become the president, Kamala, she will set up a new administration. So you're going to get the call. It's fall 2022 and you will get the call. Right. And you're going to work with her being elected president. What is if you can just write a dream job in that administration, where can you add the most added value and how can you be the pivot and the change and the tipping point that secures the first female president in the United States and the first black female president in the United States? Well, that is quite the challenging question, uh, but I do love the vision because I, I do see- It feels uh, good hearing you say it. Yeah. You know, personally, I have been uh, a, a supporter of, of Senator Harris, uh, and I'll just go back and just share this story about her. During my time at the NAACP, you know, she was the district attorney for uh, San Francisco, the city of San Francisco. And uh, Ben and myself and uh, uh, a, a great leader, Monique Morris, I don't know if you, uh, uh, she does amazing work on, on uh, Black girls and violence against Black girls. Um, but at the time she was at the NAACP and, and, and another colleague, Robert Brooks, you know, we had this idea. We were like, hey, we need to think about banning box. Uh, and that's the, the, the you know, remove moving this question of are you do you have a felony conviction off of the application process because what we learn is that when it's on the application process and when someone's reviewing the application we have the box check it's sort of a stigma uh and that application doesn't really kind of move it through versus if you have an opportunity it's not on the application but it's an interview question and then you have an opportunity to explain it some incident you may have had uh you know some uh non-violent um offense and it was 18 years ago but that stigma if you check that box and so you know we reached out and we were you know going to approach walmart to ask walmart this is back i think in 2010 uh and we were going to ask walmart to consider a pilot to remove the box and we reached out to all of these district attorneys across the country 
And Kamala Harris responded and actually was instrumental in helping uh, convince Walmart to, to, to ban the box. Um, and which has had a massive impact because then, you know, now years later, you know, it is almost somewhat of a standard that that box is, has, has been removed. I've been, you know, uh, an admirer of, of Senator Kamala Harris and, and really a part of a collective of Black women whom, you know, we didn't have as much opportunity to talk about, but an, an opportunity um, to, to work with a number of Black women who organized around this hashtag, Win With Black Women. And uh, we have come together and we came together and it was very clear. But I think that the place where I think I would want to be is really in a place to provide leadership, you know, to become uh, almost a, a czar uh, that's really focused on economic advancement for Black women and with a special focus in the area of tech because economic and financial freedom is vitally important. Joe Taker, you you know, just hearing you speak, you're definitely one of those people that's going to take us there and be there when that happens. It would be amazing messaging, amazing to see you taking or taking, you know, it's not going to be Mnuchin's job, but somebody in that role, you know, that would be an upgrade, you know, to have. I like the I like the title Czar. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We go I ahead. want to see you, Joe Taker, as a Czar, definitely. Uh, and to end it on this high note with a vision to 2024, I think that's a beautiful trajectory for this day. All right. Thank you so much. And it, it was just a pleasure and an honor. I appreciate it. And I will tell tomorrow that I am grateful for the connection. Thank you so much, Joe Take care.